So chapter 11, clean and unclean animals. This is not as serious as the things that are to come. We're going to be told about several clean and unclean things. First, animals. Then we're going to talk about um, skin diseases and discharges. <laughs> so everybody come back. But this one's not as serious. Because if you touch an unclean animal, that does not make you unclean. And eating an unclean animal is not as serious to your uncleanliness as the other things will be. So God will start with the lesser and move to the greater. This is the part that a lot of people struggle with. Like, okay, we know we don't have to do this anymore, but what in the world was it there for to begin with? Because Acts chapter 10 makes it very clear when Jesus lays out the blanket of all the animals and says, Peter, get up and eat. And Peter's like, these are unclean animals. And he's like, I know, get up and eat everything. And we know it has some connection to Cornelius and the Gentiles, but other than that, it's like, okay, we don't have to do that anymore. But here's the reality. First, you must understand that they are not the only culture that has clean and unclean animals. So it goes all the way back to Noah. Many cultures during this time period had the concept of clean and unclean animals. Every culture had different lists. And you also must understand this list does not include every animal in the world. This only includes a list of animals that live in Israel in that region which means God never intended this to be a comprehensive command to all people for all times because it's a very pathetic limited list if that's true. It only covers the animals local to that region, which means he, from the very, that should have immediately told you from the very beginning that he had no intention of expanding this. Or if he did, he should be coming in later books and saying, oh, by the way, now that you're going to Babylon, here's a new list. But he never did that. And so the reality is you must understand that this list is not complete to all the world, and they're not the only people with their own list. The other thing you must understand is that clean animals means this. You're allowed to eat any animal that is clean, and then you're allowed to sacrifice them. However, the sacrifice list becomes smaller. So you've got this big category of clean animals, and you're allowed to eat any of them. And then God is going to take a subgroup of those clean animals and say you can sacrifice them. And so you cannot sacrifice any clean animal, but you can eat any clean animal. However, the list of what you're allowed to sacrifice comes from the clean list animal, even though it does not include every animal. So you're not allowed to sacrifice like a grasshopper, but it's considered a clean animal. And so you, may, so you understand that there's a larger clean I'm allowed to eat and then a sub-clean that I'm allowed to sacrifice. And we've already talked about what animals you're allowed to sacrifice in the first seven chapters. So now he's going to broaden it, so to speak, and say, and you can eat these. So the first thing he does is he talks about land animals. Any animal that chews the cud and has a split hoof is considered clean. You, it has to be both. He has to chew the cud and have a split hoof in order to become clean. Now, it is very obvious that chewing the cud does not mean chewing the cud like it does today. Today, chewing the cud means an animal that literally re-chews its food, regurgitates it like a cow. Eat, chews, swallows, regurgitate, chews. In other words, that's literal technical because everything is technical in the modern day world. But chewing the cud, as you read this list, it mentions some animals and we're like, that, they don't chew the cud. But it's clear that it looks like they're chewing the cud. 
So when God says chewing the cud, it's either that they do or that they have the appearance of it. So they never stop chewing their food. These animals are allowed to be eaten. Then we move to the second category. The second category is fish. Any creature in the sea who has both fins and scales are allowed to be eaten. So that removes shrimp and lobsters and you know all those things that you pay extra money for to eat seafood. And then we go to the birds. The birds, he actually didn't give a huge criteria, but he did make it clear that any bird that has wings and walks on two feet or is considered clean, he lists 20 different varieties. But he also eliminates the flesh eaters. So crow technically is considered clean by having wings and two feet, but it becomes unclean because it eats flesh, carcasses. That becomes obvious because they're touching the dead. And so the animals that encounter the dead and feed off the dead become unclean. Then he continues into the bird category with the insects. Pretty much every insect is considered unclean. So this is eliminate like half the diet of Asia. So the reality is anything that has multiple legs, you know, all those things that you probably would never ever want to eat to begin with, except for anything that has wings and hops on two legs. So like a grasshopper is allowed to be eaten. And then he goes on and says that only dead animals pollute the human being. So if you touch the clean, unclean animal, you don't become polluted. You only become polluted if you eat it or if it's dead and you touch it. So this is the one case where you can touch something that's unclean and you don't become unclean. However, if you eat it or it's dead and you touch it, then you become unclean. And all animals are considered unclean unless they've been sacrificed. The only exception to a dead animal not making you unclean is if you sacrifice it. And then he goes on to other swarming animals, such as mice, lizards, are all unclean, and they may not be eaten. If they're found dead inside of a vessel, that vessel becomes unclean and you must destroy it. Anything upon which the dead animal fell upon also becomes unclean. The only exception is an animal falls into a cistern. Most likely, God will later go on and say that animal must be getting out, gotten out complete, quickly, but probably the cistern, remember, was a hole in the ground filled with rain, and it only rained a couple months of the year, and that was your water for the entire year. So if your cistern becomes unclean because of one little dead animal, you're pretty much all going to die from on thirst. So God probably made an exception to that for the sake of the life of the animal. And cisterns were so big that it's very unlikely that a little dead animal is going to make that thing unclean. And then he goes on and says, if a earthenware becomes polluted, meaning some pottery that was made out of clay, you're to destroy it. If a wooden vessel had a dead animal touch it, it does not have to be destroyed. Most likely, it's probably because wooden potteries take longer to make and are easier to purify. Wood is less absorbent than the clay pottery. Now, that's not true today. I don't know what the rules on wooden pottery is today. But in the ancient world, they made things differently than what we do. And so, um, and they didn't have glazes and that kind of stuff. Here's the reality. All is detail. That you're like, okay, this definitely does not apply to us today. 
because God made that clear in Acts chapter 10. So what in the world is the point? Remember that God said that everything in the law was to teach Israel. So what in the world is he trying to teach them through the clean and unclean animals? Ultimately, we have no idea. It's been completely lost. However, there have been theories presented. Some people have presented the idea that this is completely arbitrary. God just randomly said, clean, unclean, clean, unclean, unclean. Let's see if they obey me. Now, there's a problem with that because that makes God very arbitrary. And God has never presented himself as arbitrary. And God said that the entire point of the law was to teach people, and that's not teaching them anything at all. And yes, there's times that God said, I did this in order to test them to see if they would obey me. But even the rules that he's giving in that testing have a very specific lesson that it's trying to teach. So that's not, I think you know, most of us would probably feel in their hearts that that just doesn't feel right. And I mean your spiritual heart. The second view is that this is a response to the pagan nations. So any animal that the pagans thought were okay to sacrifice and eat, and God doesn't want them to be like the pagans, he says that that's unclean, but all the animals that they don't care about become clean and they're allowed to do that. There's a huge problem with that one. I don't know who thought that one through. They must have never read the book of Leviticus. Because the problem is the Egyptians worshipped every animal. So if you follow that logical, every logic, every animal becomes unclean. The second problem is this. The most revered and worshipped animal in all cultures was the ox. And yet that is the biggest animal sacrifice to atone for the priesthood. On top of that, they also sacrificed sheep and rams. And that's a part of the clean list. So if you just spent like two seconds reading the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you realize that that doesn't work. It does kind of fit the spirit because many laws are in here only because the pagans did it and he doesn't want them to be like that, but it doesn't fit the greater context of what God is allowing. The third view is that this is hygienic. This is probably what a lot of you have been taught, that these animals are unhealthy for you to eat, but the unclean animal or the clean animals are healthy to eat and God's protecting their diet and their health. There's a problem with that. One, never, ever, ever does God ever point to health as a reason for a lot of things he does. It's always a secondary benefit because he's interested in it, but there's always primarily a deeper spiritual theological lesson that's being taught, and health just happens to be because God is so awesome at killing two birds with one stone when it comes to theology. The other big problem with this is many animals that are in the clean list are actually unhealthy more unhealthy than the unclean animals. And one of the things that they thought for a long time was the pig was the big one. Well, pigs are unhealthy. We now realize that pigs are unhealthy, okay, especially if you control their diet. I mean, if you let them eat anything, yeah, but that's true of any animal. A goat, too, and they're considered clean. The reality is, is that this doesn't work because you can find many unhealthy and healthy animals on the unclean list and likewise on the clean list. And it doesn't answer the fact that God comes along one day and says, Peter, you can eat all the unclean animals now. But I thought this was about our health. I don't care about your health anymore. So it doesn't work. It doesn't work. This leads us to the fourth view. And the fourth view is that these animals are symbolic of something, which just fit a lot of what God does in his law. Many things are symbolic. The serpent being lifted up on the staff is symbolic. The lampstand is symbolic. 
table showbread is symbolic. The whole sacrificial system is symbolic. It has no real intrinsic value to accomplishing anything except for just symbolically giving you a chance to demonstrate your faith. The problem is, what is it symbolic of? And if you say it's symbolic, then the imagination can go wild. And there's some pretty imaginative theories out there. Most scholars agree that an anthropologist by the name of Mary Douglas is probably right. Mary Douglas is a very respected anthropologist. And she's also a scholar. And she has gone through the entire law with like a fine-tooth comb and really tried to get the whole point of the law and she has come with an idea of what symbolic means. And many scholars have said that makes a lot of sense. She may not be right, but when a lot of people have dedicated their entire life to studying the Bible and all have the Holy Spirit say that seems to be it, that says something. That says something. And so she says this. At the very beginning, I told you that Gordon Winham, who is also one of the most respected scholars out there on the book of Leviticus, and just in the entire First Testament, almost everything he writes, everybody's like, wow, that's amazing, on any book of the Bible, said that the whole point of clean and holiness is wholeness. Being, remember in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, God says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And the point that he was making was that this thing is functioning the way that God designed it in relation to everything else, it is the way that it's supposed to be. And therefore, it's going to produce maximum life, maximum joy. We know that when things don't work the way they're supposed to, there is no life and there is no joy. On an emotional level, on a mental level, a social, physical, spiritual level. And so none of us have any hope of ever being good in this life because we're broken by sin. Therefore, we will never be able to function to our maximum potential in the way that God designed us, and we will never function in a good way with each other so perfectly that we will have life and joy and peace in the way that God intended us to have. Not until Christ comes back and makes everything right. And we know that because this is why we have counseling and prayer and repentance and Bible studies and we feel convicted and, and we're always saying I'm sorry to friends and family, hopefully you are, and all that kind of stuff. So the reality is, so what is clean then? Clean is us getting as close to good as we humanly possibly can. The reality is there's no way I can completely get rid of my sin nature. But I can repent and make sacrifices and read my Bible and pray to the best of my human ability to get as close to God as relationally as possible that I can function in a good way as best as possible in a fallen world. Even though I'll never get there, it's, it's like saying, well, I'll never completely know every thought that my wife has, so what's the point of even trying to know her? That's dumb. No, I will never know her completely. But I want to know her as best of my ability, so I will do everything in my power to get as close to her as possible throughout time. Because the closer I get to her, the better the relationship's going to be and the more joy we're going to have. And so that's what clean is. Clean is you getting as close to God through prayer, Bible reading, sacrificial system, repentance, all those things, so you can function as close to good, being right before God to the best of your ability. 
And that includes body. Remember, the priest has a, a physical defect. He's not allowed in the tabernacle. That's not God being discriminatory against people with handicaps. The point is, is that God is good. And the only thing that's allowed in his presence is everything that's good. Is that person a sinner because they have a physical defect? No. But they have a physical defect as a result of sin. And what God is trying to communicate is that the only way you can get to his presence is if you're perfect. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, and physically. Now, Christ, through our death, his death and resurrection, and through our resurrection, will get us back to that state of perfection one day. That's why you and I are not allowed into his presence until we're perfect. And the only reason you can go to heaven once you die is because your body is discarded. But eventually your body will be resurrected into a perfect state. And so the reality is you can't come in the presence of God unless you're perfect. And that's what God's trying to communicate. Because that message is more important than your feelings of being felt left out by the tabernacle. Because this isn't about your feelings. This is about God communicating a theological picture of who he is and what it takes to get in his presence. So therefore, clean and good means being normal. So Mary Douglas has said that the clean are normal animals and the unclean are abnormal animals. What do normal animals do? They walk on all fours and they eat vegetables. So an animal that does not do that is not normal according to its kind. Now, are they not normal because of the fall? No. Are they not normal because they're somehow bad animals and God screwed up? No. They're not normal in a symbolic sense. When you look at most animals, most animals walk on all four and eat grains. Therefore, the ones that don't are the abnormal ones. They're the minority. When you get to fish, most fish have fins and scales. The ones who don't do have that, they're not normal. Shrimp don't really look like fish in the way that we think of fish. Lobsters don't really look like fish. A lot of people are creeped out by these things. Yes. And so the reality is, then when you come to birds, birds have two legs and wings. That's normal. And therefore, insects that fly and crawl are in the bird category. And if they don't look like a bird, then they're not normal. Therefore, a grasshopper is normal because it looks like a bird. I don't mean literally, but the wings, the flying, and the two legs. Now, there are some exceptions because the pig could fit into the clean category, but it's not a part of the Israelite culture. Pigs didn't really exist there. So for them to bring a pig into their culture is not normal. And technically a lamb does not fit into the clean category, but a lamb was so much a part of their culture and so much a part of their economy that that is normal for them. Which shows you that God is not just looking at the way the animal functions as, as design, but how it functions. Because it's so much a part of the economy of Israel, it becomes normal. And because a bird is normal, but now it's eating on a dead body, that's not normal, eating a dead body. That's a result of death, therefore it becomes not normal. Does that kind of make sense? So what she's looking at is most animals in the land category, 
and most animals in the fish category and most animals in the flying category notice the three levels of creation, sky, land, and sea. They all tend to function in a certain way. Therefore, they're normal. The ones who don't function that way are not normal. And then there's a few exceptions to that list because there are always a few exceptions to everything. So what's the point that God's trying to teach them? You are to be normal according to the way that God designed you. Now, think about how much your life revolves around food. Then go in the ancient world and think about how much of their life revolves around food and the preparing of food. You and I can go to a grocery store, and yeah, it might take you 30 or 40 minutes to make a meal, but that's nothing compared to what it took them in the ancient world to do. And then think about how much of the life involves the sacrificial system. And then what did they all do for a living? They're all keepers of livestock. So animals are a huge part of their life. In fact, it's the biggest part of their life. So the one thing that they're always doing, taking care of animals, eating animals, preparing animals, sacrificing animals, and God is drilling in their head, that's normal, that's not. That's normal, that's not. That's not, that's normal. You're not allowed to mix abnormal, unclean things with normal things. And then what is he going to do in the second half of Leviticus? The people who have sexual relations like the Canaanites are not normal. The people who have relationships with animals like this are not normal. The people who talk to their friends like this are not normal. The people who do these sins are not normal. You are not allowed to mix with not normal, not good, not clean people. And as they spend their entire life in business and in eating and in sacrifice, separating the clean from the unclean, clean from the unclean, clean from the unclean, then when they look at the world around them and they look at the people that are surrounding them, they're separating the clean from the unclean. Because what is it by what God keeps saying? To teach Aaron to make distinction between the clean and the unclean. And Aaron's job is then to go to the people and teach them to make distinctions between the clean and the unclean. So that when they go into the Canaanite nation, they will have it ingrained into their head, the clean and the unclean. If you remember way back when, not too far back, but somewhat back, there was that movie called Karate Kid. And if you've never seen it, he has the kid go out and wax his car. Wax, 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 every day. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. And then he goes to the fence and he tells him to paint the fence. He's up and down, up and down. Makes him do it a certain way. And the kid's are like, this is dumb. I signed up to learn karate and you just have me being a servant and a slave, building all your, doing all this stuff. And he makes him do it day after day after day after day after day. And he says, I'm done. I'm quitting. And Miyagi, the teacher, says, defend yourself. And he attacks him. And the kid can't defend himself. And then he says, wax on, wax off. And he goes to punch him, and he does the blocks without even thinking about it. And he goes paint up and down, and he does the blocks. He was teaching him fighting movements, but by making him work and drilling it into him every single day, he just did it without thinking. And he realized what seemed insignificant and only symbolic here became the very tools that he needed to defend himself but they were so ingrained in him that he didn't think about it. 
So God then teaches you clean and unclean in the thing that you do every single day in your life and drills it into you so powerfully that when you turn and face the world, you can't help but think that way when you think about people. And then when we move into the second half of Leviticus, you're already thinking clean and unclean, clean and unclean. Because God is drilling this into your life so much that your entire world is going to be clean and unclean. And you're going to know, I am not allowed to mix with people that are not normal. They don't function in a good way according to God's law. And if I connect with them, the clean automatically become unclean. And then I have to go to the tabernacle and sacrifice and do things right. But now that we've added moral uncleanness to this now, then I'm even more in trouble. Does that make sense? It's to drill into them, wax on, wax off, so that they will not think when they encounter the people and they will just operate according to God's will. Now, this helps you understand Acts 10. Because Acts 10, Christ comes to Peter and says, eat of all. There's no longer a distinction between clean and unclean. Because the, Gen- the Israelites were never allowed to mix with the Gentiles because the Gentiles had abnormal behavior and were not clean. But something had just come in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit. And all throughout the prophets, remember I've told you that it was never about Israel being ethnicity. It was about Israel being people of faith. And when we get to the prophets, the prophets are drilling into them. There will come a day when I will pour my spirit on all people and I will put my law in their hearts. And Jew, Gentile, free, slave, rich, poor, male, female, all peoples from all nations will know me as their God. And I will pour my spirit on all kinds of people. So then we get to Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts And it says that God came upon them and all people from all tribes and languages began to hear the word of God. And Peter's now struggling with, wait a minute, the spirit of God is not for the Gentiles because they're unclean, they're unclean, they're unclean, and they're unclean. And he won't go to them because they're unclean. And he thinks the spirit is only for those who are unclean, which is a very logical conclusion after thousands of years of that being drilled in your head. And Jesus comes along one night and says, eat of everything. And Peter's like, I can't. It's unclean. And God says, eat. And he's like, okay, now i got to obey this because it's God. Because technically this is not legal according to the law, but at the same time, God kind of trumps the law. And so he realizes he should. The very time, the minute the divisions are with, a Gentile knocks on the door and says, we got this Gentile, Cornelius, a Roman soldier who wants to know Christ. And Peter gets it. I'm allowed to take Christ to the unclean. And he goes there, and the Holy Spirit enters the Gentile, and the Gentile begins to speak in tongues to prove that he actually got the Holy Spirit. And Peter realizes at that moment, the distinction between clean and unclean is now different. They're still clean and unclean, but the distinction is not based on nationality, the distinction is now based on those who have the Spirit of God. And so realize the law still is there. They're still clean and unclean. 
But now it's not the criteria of what an animal does or does not do, or what nation a person comes or does not come from. Now it's based on those who have the Spirit. And so those who have the Spirit become clean. Because remember I told you that Jesus went up to the unclean and he touched them and they became clean. And that was revolutionary. Why are you then considered clean? Because Christ is in you. And every time you do something that makes you unclean, Christ is making you clean. Because he always makes the unclean clean. And so the only reason you're able to be clean now is because Christ is in you. And those who don't have the Spirit are unclean. And you're not allowed to mix with them. But then Christ kind of altered that a little bit too and said, but you're supposed to still go out and evangelize to them. And so now I make a distinction between going to them but then mingling with them and calling them friends and making them a part of my community. And this is why the early Christians made you be a Christian for several months and be in the church before they could find out whether you really truly had the fruits of the Spirit before you're allowed to be a member and before you learned about who everybody was a Christian because their life was on the line. And so the reality is that fits. And this is why a lot of scholars say that Mary Douglas's interpretation seems to be right on because it fits the whole entire spirit and the message of the entire law all the way through the gospel and the fulfillment of the law. Because God knows that we need things drilled into us. This is the beauty of sci-fi novels. Sci-fi novels can address issues that normal books can't because they can just change it. So how do you address racism with a bunch of people who are racist? You make them aliens. And nobody has baggage against aliens because nobody knows aliens. And so when you have a bunch of Klingons and a bunch of Earthlings and they're getting together and they're becoming one, then it's subconsciously teaching you that maybe that's true with black and white people too. Maybe we just misunderstood their culture and all that kind of stuff. And sci-fi does, does that a lot. They kind of come at you at an angle that you have no baggage and no stereotypes and they teach you a lesson so that you hopefully will turn around and say, oh, wow, that might be true in real life too. That's what God's doing. There's no baggage with animals. There's no stereotypes with animals. So he teaches you a lesson so you can turn to the world, and then you realize, oh, that's true here too. Because God is the master teacher. He knows how to teach well. If only he would write a, a book on how to teach. <laughs> then we won't have to figure out what paradigm is right. Does that make sense? Now, once again, that may not be right. I'm willing to admit that that's not right, but I think it fits, and I think it works. And even if it's wrong, I still think that could still be very much an idea that God is trying to communicate because it fits the whole story of the Bible and the whole heart of who God is. Okay, does that make sense?